0: Welcome back to The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, a podcast production brought to you by Someone New Theatre Company. We hope that you enjoy this episode, The Boscombe Valley Mystery, Part 2. It was late before Sherlock Holmes returned. He came back alone, for Lestrade
1: was staying in lodgings in the town. The glass still keeps very high, he remarked as he sat down. It is of importance that it should not rain before we are able to go over the ground. On the other hand, a man should be at his very best and keenness for such nice work as that. I did not wish to do it when fagged by a long journey. I have seen young McCarthy. Ah, and what did you learn from him? Nothing. Could he throw no light? None at all. I was inclined to think at one time that he knew who had done it and was screening him or her, but I am convinced now that he is as puzzled as everyone else. He is not a very quick-witted youth, though comely to look at, and I should think, sound at heart.
0: I cannot admire his taste, if it is indeed a fact that he was averse to a marriage with so charming a young lady as this Miss Turner.
1: Ah, thereby hangs a rather painful tale. This fellow is madly, insanely in love with her... But some two years ago, when he was only a lad, and before he really knew her, for she had been away for five years at a boarding school, what does the idiot do but get into the clutches of a barmaid in Bristol and marry her at a registry office? No one knows a word of the matter, but you can imagine how maddening it must be to him to be upbraided for not doing what he would give his very eyes to do, but what he knows to be absolutely impossible.' "'It was sheer frenzy of this sort which made him throw his hands up in the air "'when his father, at their last interview, was goading him on to propose to Miss Turner. "'On the other hand, he had no means of supporting himself, "'and his father, who was by all accounts a very hard man, "'would have thrown him over utterly had he known the truth. "'It was with this barmaid wife that he had spent the last three days in Bristol, "'and his father did not know where he was.' Mark that point. It is of importance. Good has come out of evil, however, for the barmaid, finding from the papers that he is in serious trouble and likely to be hanged, has thrown him over utterly and is written to him to say that she has a husband already in the Bermuda dockyard, so that there really is no tie between them. I think that that bit of news has consoled young McCarthy for all that he has suffered. But if he is innocent, who has done it? "'Ah, who? I would call your attention very particularly to two points. "'One is that the murdered man had an appointment with someone at the pool, "'and that the someone could not have been his son, "'for his son was away and he did not know when he would return. "'The second is that the murdered man was heard to cry, "'Cooey, before he knew that his son had returned. "'These are the crucial points upon which the case depends.' And now, let us talk about George Meredith, if you please, and we shall leave all minor matters until tomorrow.
0: There was no rain, as Holmes had foretold, and the morning broke bright and cloudless. At nine o'clock, Lestrade called for us with the carriage, and we set off for Hatherley Farm and the Boscombe Pool.
2: There is serious news this morning. It is said that Mr Turner, of the all, is so ill that his life is despaired of. An elderly man, I presume? About sixty his constitution has been shattered by his life abroad, and he's been in failing health for some time. This business has had a very bad effect upon him. He was an old friend of McCarthy's, and, I may add, a great benefactor to him, for I have learned that he gave him Atherley Farm rent free. Indeed. That is interesting. Oh, yes. In a hundred other ways he has helped him. Everybody about here speaks of his kindness to them. Really, does it not strike you as a little singular that this McCarthy,
1: who appears to have had little of his own and to have been under such obligations to Turner, should still talk of marrying his son to Turner's daughter, who is presumably heiress to the estate, and that in such a very cocksure manner as if it were merely a case of a proposal and all else would follow? It is the more strange, since we know that Turner himself was averse to the idea the daughter told us as much do you not deduce something from that
2: we've got to the deductions and the inferences (laughs) said Lestrade winking at me i find it hard enough to tackle facts Holmes, without flying away after theories and fancies you are right
1: you do find it very hard to tackle the facts.
2: Anyhow, I have grasped one fact which you seem to find it difficult to get hold of, replied Lestrade with some warmth. And that is? That McCarthy Sr. met his death from McCarthy Jr., and that all theories to the contrary are the merest moonshine. <laughs>
1: Well, moonshine is a brighter thing than fog, but I am very much mistaken if this is not Heatherly Farm upon the left.
2: Yes, that
0: is it. It was a widespread, comfortable-looking building, two stories, slate-roofed with great yellow blotches of lichen upon the grey walls. The drawn blinds and the smokeless chimneys, however, gave it a stricken look, as though the weight of this horror still lay heavy upon it. We called at the door, when the maid, at Holmes's request, showed us the boots which her master wore at the time of his death, and also a pair of the son's, though not the pair which he had then had. Having measured these very carefully from seven or eight different points, Holmes desired to be led to the courtyard, from which we all followed the winding track which led to Boscombe Pool. Sherlock Holmes was transformed when he was hot upon such a scent as this. Men who had only known the quiet thinker and logician of Baker Street would have failed to recognize him. His face flushed and darkened, his brows were drawn into two hard black lines, while his eyes shone out from beneath them with a steely glitter. His face was bent downward, his shoulders bowed, his lips compressed, and the veins stood out like whipcord in his long sinewy neck. His nostrils seemed to dilate with a purely animal lust for the chase, and his mind was so absolutely concentrated upon the matter before him that a question or remark fell unheeded upon his ears, or at the most only provoked a quick, impatient snarl in reply. Swiftly and silently he made his way along the track which ran through the meadows and so, by way of the woods, to the Boscombe Pool. It was damp, marshy ground, as is all that district, and there were marks of many feet, both upon the path and amid the short grass which bounded it on either side. Sometimes Holmes would hurry on, sometimes stop dead, and once he made quite a little detour into the meadow. Lestrade and I walked behind him, the detective indifferent and contemptuous, while I watched my friend with the interest which sprang from the conviction that every one of his actions was directed towards a definite end. The Boscombe Pool, which is a little reed-girt sheet of water some fifty yards across, is situated at the boundary between the Hatherley farm and the private park of the wealthy Mr. Turner. Above the woods which lined it upon the farther side, we could see the red jutting pinnacles which marked the site of the rich landowner's dwelling. On the Hatherley side of the pool, the woods grew very thick, and there was a narrow belt of sodden grass twenty paces across between the edge of the trees and the reeds which lined the lake. "'Lestrade showed us the exact spot at which the body had been found, "'and indeed so moist was the ground "'that I could plainly see the traces which had been left "'by the fall of the stricken man. "'To Holmes, as I could see by his eager face and peering eyes, "'very many other things were to be read upon the trampled grass. "'He ran round like a dog who is picking up a scent "'and then turned upon my companion.'
2: "'What did you go into the pool for?' "'I fished about with a rake. "'I thought there might be some weapon or other trace.' But how on earth did- Oh, tut-tut, I have no time. That left
1: foot of yours with its inward twist is all over the place. A mole could trace it, and there it vanishes among the reeds. Oh, how simple it would all have been had I been here before they came like a herd of buffalo and wallowed all over it. Here is where the party with the lodge-keeper came, and they have covered all the tracks for six or eight feet round the body. But here are three separate tracks of the same feet. He drew out a lens and lay down upon his waterproof to have a better view talking all the time rather to himself than to us. These are young McCarthy's feet. Twice he was walking and once he ran swiftly so that the soles are deeply marked and the heels hardly visible. That bears out his story. He ran when he saw his father on the ground. Then here are the father's feet as he paced up and down. What is this, then? It is the butt end of the gun as the son stood listening. And this. ha ha What have we got here? Tiptoes, tiptoes, square too, quite unusual. Quite unusual boots. They come, they go, they come again. Of course, that was for the cloak. Now, where did they come from?
0: He ran up and down sometimes losing, sometimes finding the track, until we were well within the edge of the wood and under the shadow of a great beech, the largest tree in the neighborhood. Holmes traced his way to the farther side of this and lay down once more upon his face with a little cry of satisfaction. For a long time he remained there, turning over the leaves and dried sticks, gathering up what seemed to me to be dust into an envelope, and examining with his lens not only the ground, but even the bark of the tree as far as he could reach. A jagged stone was lying among the moss, and this also he carefully examined and retained. Then he followed a pathway through the wood until he came to the high road, where all traces were lost. It has been a case of considerable
1: interest, he remarked, returning to his natural manner. I fancy that this grey house on the right must be the lodge. I think that I will go in and have a word with Moran, and perhaps write a little note. Having done that, we may drive back to our luncheon. You may walk to the cab, and I shall be with you presently. It was about ten minutes before we regained our cab and drove back
0: into Ross, Holmes still carrying with him the stone which he had picked up in the wood.
1: This may interest you, Lestrade, he remarked, holding it out. The murder was done with it. I see no marks. There are none. How do you know, then? The grass was growing under it. It had only lain there a few days. There was no sign of a place whence it had been taken. It corresponds with the injuries. There is no sign of any other weapon.
2: And the murderer?
1: Is a tall man, left-handed, limps with the right leg, wears thick-soled shooting boots and a grey cloak, smokes Indian cigars, uses a cigar holder and carries a blunt penknife in his pocket. There are several other indications, but these may be enough to aid us in our search.
2: Ha ha! I am afraid that I am still a sceptic. Theories are all very well, but we have to deal with an of British jewellery.
1: Nous verrons. You work your own method and I shall work mine. I shall be busy this afternoon and shall probably return to London by the evening train. And leave your case unfinished? No, finished.
2: But the mystery? It is solved. Who is the criminal then?
1: The gentleman I describe. But who is he? Surely it would not be difficult to find out. This is not such a populous neighbourhood. Lestrade shrugged his
2: shoulders. (laughs) I am a practical man. And I really cannot undertake to go about the country looking for a left-handed gentleman with a game leg. I shall become the laughingstock of Scotland Yard. All right, I have given you the chance. Here
1: are your lodgings. Goodbye. I shall drop you a line before I leave.
0: Having left Lestrade at his rooms, we drove to our hotel, where we found lunch upon the table. Holmes was silent and buried in thought, with a pained expression upon his face as one who finds himself in a perplexing position.
1: Look here, Watson, he said when the cloth was cleared. Just sit down in this chair and let me preach to you for a little. I don't know quite what to do, and I should value your advice. Light a cigar and let me expound. Pray do so. Well, now, in considering the case, there are two points about young McCarthy's narrative which struck us both instantly, although they impressed me in his favour and you against him. One was the fact that his father should, according to his count, cry cooey before seeing him. The other was his singular dying reference to a rat. He mumbled several words, you understand, but that was all that caught the son's ear. Now, from this double point, our research must commence, and we will begin it by presuming that what the lad says is absolutely true. What of this cooee then? Well, obviously it could not have been meant for the sun. The sun, as far as he knew, was in Bristol. It was mere chance that he was within earshot. The cooee was meant to attract the attention of whoever it was that he had the appointment with. But cooee is a distinctly Australian cry, and one which is used between Australians. There is a strong presumption that the person whom McCarthy expected to meet him at Boscombe Pool was someone who had been in Australia. What of the rat, then? Sherlock Holmes took a folded paper from his pocket and flattened it out on the table. This is a map of the colony of Victoria. I wired to Bristol for it last night. He put his hand over part of the map. What do you read? A rat. And now? He raised his hand. Ballarat? Ballarat? Quite so. That was the word the man uttered and of which his son only caught the last two syllables. He was trying to utter the name of his murderer, so-and-so of Ballarat. It is wonderful. It is obvious. And now, you see, I had narrowed the field down considerably. The possession of a grey garment was a third point, which, granting the son's statement to be correct, was a certainty. We have come now, out of mere vagueness, to the definite conception of an Australian from Ballarat with a grey cloak. Certainly. And one who was at home in the district. For the pool can only be approached by the farm or by the estate, where strangers could hardly wander. Quite so. Then comes our expedition of today. By an examination of the ground, I gained the trifling details which I gave to that imbecile Lestrade as to the personality of the criminal. But how did you gain them? You know my method. It is founded upon the observation of
0: trifles. His height, I know that you might roughly judge from the length of his stride. His boots, too, might be told from their traces. Yes, they were peculiar boots.
1: But his lameness? The impression of his right foot was always less distinct than his left. He put less weight on it. Why? Because he limped. He was lame. But his left-handedness? You were yourself struck by the nature of the injury, as recorded by the surgeon at the inquest. The blow was struck from immediately behind, and yet was upon the left side. Now, how can that be unless it were by a left-handed man? He had stood behind that tree during the interview between the father and son. He had even smoked there. I found the ash of a cigar, which my special knowledge of tobacco ashes enables me to pronounce it as an Indian cigar. I have, as you know, devoted some attention to this and written a little monograph on the ashes of 140 different varieties of pipe, cigar and cigarette tobacco. Having found the ash, I then looked round and discovered the stump among the moss, where he had tossed it. It was an Indian cigar of the variety which it rolled in Rotterdam. And the cigar holder? I could see that the end had not been in his mouth. Therefore he used a holder. The tip had been cut off, not bitten off, but the cut was not a clean one so I deduced a blunt penknife. Holmes, you have drawn a net round this man from which he
0: cannot escape, and you have saved an innocent human life as truly as if you had cut the cord which was hanging him. I see the direction in which all this points. The culprit is... Mr John Turner, cried the hotel waiter, opening the door of our sitting room and ushering in a visitor. The man who entered was a strange and impressive figure. His slow, limping step and bowed shoulders gave the appearance of decrepitude, and yet his hard, deep-lined, craggy features and his enormous limbs showed that he was possessed of unusual strength of body and of character. His tangled beard, grizzled hair and outstanding drooping eyebrows combined to give an air of dignity and power to his appearance, but his face was of an ashen white, while his lips and the corner of his nostrils were tinged with a shade of blue. It was clear to me at a glance that he was in the grip of some deadly and chronic disease.
1: Pray sit down on the sofa. You had my note? Yes, the lodgekeeper brought it up. You said that you wished to see me here to avoid scandal. I thought people would talk, if I went to the hall. And why did you wish to see me? He looked across
0: at my companion with despair in his weary eyes, as though his question was already answered. Yes, said Holmes, answering the look rather than the words. It is so. I know all about McCarthy. The old man sank his face in his hands.
3: God help me, but I would not have let the young man come to harm. I give you my word that I would have spoken out if it went against him at the assizes. I am glad. To hear you say so. I would have spoken now had it not been for my dear girl.
1: It would break her heart. It will break her heart when she hears that I am arrested. It may not come to that. What? I am no official agent. I understand that it was your daughter who required my presence here, and I am acting in her interests. Young McCarthy must be got off, however.
3: I am a dying man. I've had diabetes for years. My doctor says it's a question whether I shall live a month. Yet I would rather die under my own roof than in a jail. Holmes rose and sat down at the table,
1: with his pen in his hand and a bundle of paper before him. Just tell us the truth. I shall jot down the facts, you will sign it, and Watson here can witness it. Then I could produce your confession at the last extremity to save young McCarthy. I promise you that I shall not use it unless it is absolutely needed. It's as well... It's a question whether I shall live to the assizes, so
3: it matters little to me. But I should wish to spare Alice the shock. And now I will make the thing clear to you. It has been a long time in the acting, but will not take me long to tell. You didn't know this dead man, McCarthy. He was a devil incarnate. I tell you that. God keep you out of the clutches of such a man as he. His grip has been upon me these twenty years, and he has blasted my life. I'll tell you first how I came to be in his power. It was in the early 60s at the diggings. I was a young chap then, hot-blooded and reckless, ready to turn my hand at anything. I got among bad companions, took to drink, had no luck with my claim, took to the bush, and in a word became what you would call over here a highway robber. There were six of us, and we had a wild free life of it. Sticking up a station from time to time or stopping the wagons on the road to the diggings. Blackjack of Ballarat was the name I went under and our party is still remembered in the colony as the Ballarat Gang. One day a gold convoy came down from Ballarat to Melbourne and we lay in wait for it and attacked it. There were six troopers and six of us so it was a close thing but we emptied four of their saddles at the first volley. Three of our boys were killed, however, before we got the swag. I put my pistol to the head of the wagon driver, who was this very man McCarthy. I wished to the Lord that I had shot him then, but I spared him. Though I saw his wicked little eyes fixed on my face, as though to remember my every feature. We got away with the gold, became wealthy men, and made our way over to England without being suspected. There I parted way from my old pals and determined to settle down to a quiet and respectable life. I bought this estate, which chanced to be in the market, and I set myself to do a little good with my money, to make up for the way in which I had earned it. I married too, and though my wife died young, she left me my dear little Alice. Even when she was just a baby, her wee hand seemed to lead me down the right path as nothing else had ever done. In a word, I turned over a new leaf and did my best to make up for the past. All was going well when McCarthy laid his grip upon me. I'd gone up to town about an investment, and I met him in Regent Street with hardly a coat to his back or a boot to his foot. Here we are, Jack, says he, touching me on the arm. We'll be as good as a family to you. There's two of us, me and my son, and you can have the keeping of us. If you don't... A fine, law abiding country is England, and there's always a policeman within ale. Well, down they came to the west country. There was no shaking them off, and there they have lived rent free on my best land ever since. There was no rest for me, no peace, no forgetfulness. Turn where I would, there was his cunning, grinning face at my elbow. It grew worse as Alice grew up, for he soon saw I was more afraid of her knowing my past than the police. Whatever he wanted he must have, and whatever it was I gave him without question. Land, money, houses, until at last he asked a thing which I could not give. He asked for Alice. His son, you see, had grown up, and so had my girl, and I was known to be in weak health. It seemed a fine stroke to him that his lad should step into the old property. But there I was firm. I would not have his cursed stock mixed with mine. Not that I had any dislike to the lad, but his blood was in him, and that was enough. I stood firm. McCarthy threatened. I braved him to do his worst. We were to meet at the pool midway between our houses to talk it over. When I went down there, I found him talking with his son, so I smoked a cigar and waited behind a tree until he should be alone. But as I listened to his talk, all that was black and bitter in me seemed to come uppermost. He was urging his son to marry my daughter with as little regard for what she might think as if she were a slut from off the streets. It drove me mad to think that I and all that I held most dear should be in the power of such a man as this. Could I not snap the bond? I was already a dying and desperate man. Though clear of mind and fairly strong a limb, I knew that my own fate was sealed. But my memory of my girl... Both could be saved if I could but silence that foul tongue. I did it, Mr. Holmes. I would do it again. Deeply as I have sinned, I have led a life of martyrdom to atone for it. But that my girl should be entangled in the same meshes which held me was more than I could suffer. I struck him down with no more compunction than if he had been some foul and venomous beast. His cry brought back his son, but I had gained the cover of the wood, though I was forced to go back to fetch the cloak which I had dropped in my flock. That is a true story, gentlemen. All that occurred.
1: Well, it is
0: not for me to judge you, said Holmes as the old man signed the statement which had been
1: drawn out. I pray that we may never be exposed to such a temptation. I pray not, sir. What do you intend to do? In view of your health, nothing. You are yourself aware that you will soon have to answer for your deed at a higher court than the assizes. I will keep your confession, and if McCarthy is condemned, I shall be forced to use it. If not, it shall never be seen by mortal eye, and your secret, whether you be alive or dead, shall be safe with us. Farewell, then.
3: Your own deathbeds, when they come, will be the easier for the thought of the peace which you have given to mine.
0: Tottering and shaking in all his giant frame, he stumbled slowly from the room. "'God help us,' said Holmes after a long
1: silence. "'Why does fate play such tricks with poor helpless worms? "'I never hear of such a case as this, that I do not think of Baxter's words and say—' there but for the grace of God goes Sherlock Holmes." James
0: McCarthy was acquitted at the Assizes on the strength of a number of objections which had been drawn out by Holmes and submitted to the Defending counsel. Old Turner lived for seven months after our interview, but he is now dead, and there is every prospect that the son and daughter may come to live happily together in ignorance of the black cloud which rests upon their past. Thank you for joining us for Part 2 of the Boscombe Valley Mystery. This episode featured the voices of Stephen Georgiadis as Sherlock Holmes, Shannon Nichols as Dr John H. Watson, and they are joined by Matt Young as Inspector Lestrade, Greg Shawcross as John Turner, and Connor Punch as the hotel waiter. Join us for the five orange pips
3: in our next episode.